There is uh, two passages of scripture today. The first is Luke 15, 11 through 13. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and he took a journey into the far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. The second passage is Psalms 103, or Psalm, I guess, 103, 6 through 14. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, he, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As, far, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, he remembers we are but dust. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Vicki. So good morning. It's good to see you on this cool Florida fall morning. How about it? The fall has made it to Florida, at least for 24 hours or so. Uh, and it's so good to be with you uh, this morning. We continue in a series uh, in the parable of the prodigal son. We're doing the entire month of November, which might seem strange to you. And, and, but really, uh, as I've outlined this and thought about this someday before I retire from doing this, I want to spend about four months in these, in these verses because there's so much here. It's so foundational to our faith. Uh, and so we're going to take another pass at it this morning, but looking at something very specific in um, one of the lessons that the parable offers to us. And I think Jesus tells the parable in, for many reasons, but one of the main reasons is, is to correct our wrong views about what God is like. That's really what he's trying to do, because if you have bad theology, it will show up in bad behavior. Or turn that around, whatever behavior problem you're facing, it's really a believing problem. We say this all the time. So the problem with the people that Jesus is telling the story in Luke 15 to is that they say they believe in God. They're moral and religious and, and good and all of these things, but they're self-righteous and judgmental and they, uh, they're impatient with people who are weak and, um, and you know, they, they disdain those who are struggling and so forth. So they're, 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 they say they have faith, but their faith is not showing up in love. There's no joy. There's no... There's just no freeness in their spirit, and it's a spiritual deformity that is the result about wrong ideas about God and sin and salvation. They believe, they believe in God, but they believe in a God that is not like the God of the Bible as he reveals himself, particularly to us in Jesus, and then as Jesus reveals him to us in this story. And so what you see in both of these younger boys, because remember, it's the story of two boys, and they're both lost, and it's because they both have wrong ideas about their father. Think about the younger boy just again for a minute. He comes home after so squandering his family's property. How does he expect to be treated when he arrives home by his father? We know he thinks 
you know, I'm going to be squashed. I'm going to be treated harshly because I've made this huge mistake. And we see in the story he could not be more wrong about the reality of his father's heart because instead of being slapped across the face or cast out by his father, the father runs and embraces him and kisses him and so forth, showing him just how wrong he was about the reality of his father's love. But then there's the older boy, too who has come home I mean, and stayed home and has done the hard work that the family business required of him. And yet what we see is that he too has wrong ideas about the father. He really considers the father fundamentally stingy and, and ungenerous. He says to him, I've slaved for you all these years and you've not even given me a goat that I could celebrate with my friends. And the correction the father has to make is to say to him, son, you're wrong about me. All that I have belongs to you. Everything that is mine is yours. And so both these boys are suffering from wrong ideas about what their father is like, and it, and it, and it causes their lives to go off track. And so the parable is a correction to the wrong idea about who God is that we live with. And what Jesus teaches us here is the fundamental spiritual problem in our life is that we don't, in fact, know how loved we are by God. That that is the fundamental problem with so much of what's wrong in our lives. Because you see, if you think of God, and if you think he's like what the sons in the parable thought their dad was like, fundamentally stingy and unkind or harsh, stern, judgmental, whatever it might be, what happens if you believe God's like that, you will turn into a person like the older brother who is moral and good but self-righteous and judgmental and missing out on so much joy. Because we're told, verse 2, that the parable is told to the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus is teaching them. It's, it's about them. He wants, he wants it to come, he wants it to land on their hearts because their hearts are so out of alignment with the truth. And so we're going to take one more pass through the story to try to correct what Jesus is trying to correct here and see that there really are just two great truths uh, that the parable is trying to drill into our hearts. And the first is that we are loved by God the Father. Amen? We are loved by God the Father in a way that we can barely imagine, in a way that our hearts don't even want to believe is true because we're like these two boys. But if the great truth of the parable is that we're loved by God the Father, there's a second great truth of the parable. And the second great truth is that because we're loved by God the Father, that we are to love like God the Father. And that requires a great deal of wisdom. So we're going to do some applying of this at the end. So if you just look at the text with me together, just those two things, I want you to see, and let's pray the Spirit would work to help us see that we are indeed loved by God the Father and that we are to love like God the Father. And so the first great truth that we see here, let's, let's look, is that God uh, is like the Father in the parable. Jesus is revealing God as, as he knows him, as the Son. Now, it may not be how... You know God. It may be hard for you to imagine that God is like this, that God loves like the Father in the story loves, that he loves you the way the Father loves his sons. But Jesus is clearly saying it's true. John writes in 1 John 4 8, God is love. In other words, love is not what God does, love is who he is. And if God is love, then everything God does is love too. And that brings us to Psalm 103. So what I wanted to do is just bounce to this, to this text in Psalm 103 because it is such beautiful language describing, I think probably better than anywhere else in the entire Bible, 
what is true of God's heart towards all that he has made, but especially towards the people that he's redeeming. And so if you, if you notice there uh, in Psalm 103, uh, I want you to look down at verse 13 as kind of the encompassing statement of those verses where the psalmist says of God, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. It's the same word that Jesus used in verse 20 of Luke 15. While he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. So this is the word most often used to describe the emotional life of Jesus in the Gospels. Jesus is a lot of things, but he's compassionate the most. And therefore, God most wants us to know him as a compassionate father. That's the deduction that I make. If what we learn about Jesus the most is his compassionate compassion, and, and if he is the exact image and representation of God revealed to us in flesh, then what God most wants us to know about himself is that he is a compassionate father. And I wrestled with that sentence for about a half hour this week, believe it or not, because I imagine there might be some disagreement, but I stand by it. God is a king. He is a judge. He is all of these things, but the most important thing is that you know him as a loving father. The word compassion in the original language refers to the gut. Literally, it's the word for the gut. So you think with your head, you love with your heart, but you feel, you feel emotions with your guts. That's what the ancient peoples believed. And so it's translated often, his heart was moved. Something inside of him was moved. It wasn't just indigestion, right? Something was, something was rolling around in his heart. And so what we learn is that God is not emotionally detached when it comes to what's happening in our lives. Fathers care. Good fathers do. They worry. They pace the floor until their children are home safe for the night. They do whatever it takes to make sure their kids have what they need. Now, it's sad for many that this is not what the word father conjures, so moms... I mean, we could substitute the word moms here. We are brought into the world literally tied to our moms. And the umbilical cord is cut, but it never really is. We all know this, don't we? Not just moms, but their kids too. We begin life wrapped in amniotic sacks of compassion. Because that's the way we're meant to live. And moms know of no other way to relate to their children than the flow of their life force going out from them and into the ones they love. They hover, they weep, they chase, for which they are often misunderstood and unappreciated and even resisted and resented, and yet none of the resentment stops them. No resistance deters them. No lack of gratitude could ever persuade them to get up. They give up. They're forever tied emotionally to the children they birth to life. And we learn something about God in that, that the father in the story, he sees his son in the immediate reaction of his heart is that he's moved he has compassion it says God is emotionally tied to you I want you to believe that that he's emotionally tied to you that he sees you that he knows the hard things you're facing and his heart he hears your cries he's not unfeeling his heart breaks over your broken heart that's what that word compassion means but we're also told here why God is so compassionate towards us in the very next verse so Look down at verse 14 because there's the connection. The word for there is could be translated because or, you know, this is the reason. So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him for he knows our frame. 
and he remembers that we are dust. Well, what is it that the Father sees in the Son as he's coming over the horizon that moves him to compassion? Well, you can even see it in the, in the image that we have uh, on, on the screen behind me. He's emaciated from hunger. He's dressed in rags. He's weary from the long journey home. And when the Father sees the shape he's in, even if there was anger because he left, it's gone. This boy went away strong, but how he comes home breaks the father's heart. He's broken and he's weak and it moves the father to compassion. And so it says in Psalm 103 that God shows compassion to you and me. Look there in verse 14, because he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. That's the language in the Bible that describes our fragility, our lack of permanence. We have no strength to hold ourselves together. We can't. We can't do it on our own. We can't do life on our own. Now, we forget this sometimes and fail to have compassion upon ourselves. We hold ourselves to higher standards than those made of dust ever should, but God does not. We are not the Good Samaritan in Jesus' other parable coming to the rescue. We're the man lying dead in the middle of the road. And we are not the hero of our own stories. We are the ones needing rescue, and God knows this. And so he's compassionate because, because he's compassionate like a father. And so we have all of the rest of this wonderful language in Psalm 103 that's meant to kind of illustrate this and expand this. And so I don't know what else to do. It's, it's almost too wonderful. It really preaches itself. You don't need me to provide a lot of explanation. We really just need to read it and stop and maybe just allow you to ponder it on your own. But let's just begin in verse 8 and just go literally phrase by phrase and word by word because it's all so wonderful here. So in verse 8, we're told the Lord is merciful which means he's tender-hearted, especially toward our pain, that his heart breaks over our heartbreaks. His we, our weeping makes him weep. The Lord is gracious, verse 8, it says there, so that with God nothing is wages, everything is gift. He's slow to anger, which is the word patience or long-suffering. God does not have a short fuse. Aren't you gl- glad for that? He doesn't get annoyed with us. Anybody else have a hard time believing that? Our sins don't weary him. It takes a lot to make him angry. He's abounding in steadfast love there, verse 8. And that's the word chesed, which describes his covenant love, his stubborn love, his love with no exit strategy, his one-way love, the love that the prophet Hosea showed for his wife Gomer, who continued to return to her infidelity as a parable of God's love for his people. Now, this is word for word God's revelation of himself, of his glory to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 7. And so it becomes something of a creedal statement uh, throughout the Old Testament scriptures answering the question, what is God like? If you have the, what is the God of the Bible like? This is what God's like. This is what God wants himself to be known for. This is what he reveals himself to be like. So it's repeated over and over again, this, this almost exact wording here in Nehemiah 9, 17 and Psalm 86, 15 and Psalm, 10, Psalm 145, verse 8 and Joel 2, 13 and Jonah 4, 2, just to give a few examples. But here we get this, this statement of God's glory as he revealed it to Moses, but it's even better. It's, ex, it's expanded, it's exegeted in some ways, by the psalmist. So what comes next is is the expansion of verse 8 in the things that he says in verses 9, 10, and 11. And so he says in verse 9, he will not chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. In other words, God gets angry. 
but he can't stay angry. His, his compassion eventually gets the best of him. Love, love and anger aren't, aren't opposites. They are two sides of the same coin. So the idea of judgment and even hell, which are fundamental Christian doctrines, are not at, odd, at odds with God's love. God is love. But First John also says that God is light. Verse 6, the, the Lord works righteousness, it says. So when I get angry at my kids... Or when you do, it doesn't mean I don't love them. It's because I love them. But the key here is that God's love is his day job. Anger is a side gig. That's the way Luther put it, that God delights in showing mercy. He's reluctant to bring judgment. You read that everywhere in the Bible. And he doesn't hold grudges. And he doesn't have a long memory when it comes to sin. Man, aren't you glad for that? He does not deal with us according to our iniquities, nor does he repay us according to our sins, verse 10. And this is the very best definition of what the Bible means by grace. And I want to make this personal by just applying it personally to you. Your life is not wages. If you're a Christian, whatever is happening to you right now, if it's good, it's not because you've earned it. If it's bad, it's not because you're being punished. There's sowing and there's reaping in life. We read this in the Bible, yes, but God is not punitive. He does not deal with us according to our sins or according to our righteousness. Nothing is wages. Everything is gift. The because of every single thing in your life is God's mercy and grace, not your performance, good or bad. So stop trying to connect what you've done with what you've got. Because that's not the way it works. He does not deal with you according to your sins. That's because he's dealt with another according to your sins, Jesus Christ, who took upon himself our sins and was treated by God, not as he deserved, but as we deserved, and given death and hell so that now he can deal with you and me according to his righteousness and not our sin. Do you know what that means? The Apostle Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, all the promises of God are yes to you in Christ. He said, there's a divine yes over your life that is the spring from which everything that happens to you flows. And it gets even better. <laughs> it gets even better because in the next verse he says, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. And as far as the east is from the west... So far does he remove our transgressions from us. Now, this is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? And I love what Spurgeon says here. And he says most things better than I ever could dream of. He says, sin, sin is removed from us by the miracle of love. And what a load to move. It's like lugging a piano up four flights of stairs. What a load to move, and yet it is removed so far that the distance is incalculable. Fly as far as the wings of imagination can bear you, and if you journey through space eastward, you're further from the west at every beat of your wing. And if sins be removed so far, then we may be sure that the scent, the trace, the very memory of it must be entirely gone. If this be the distance of its removal, there is no shade of fear of its ever being brought back again. Our sins are gone. Jesus has borne them away. And so the prophet says, who is like you, O Lord, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? You do not retain your anger forever because you delight in steadfast love and you will again have compassion on us. You will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and remember them no more. You will show faithfulness and steadfast love.
That's what God's like. That's how he loves. That's the father that Jesus knew and that he wants you to know. But of course, there's some obstacles to this, aren't there? Because what about the times when it doesn't feel like God, God loves like this? Because life is full of times like that when the darkness comes down, when you have to endure tremendous disappointment and pain and loss because we live in a fallen world that is yet to be redeemed. Well, I actually think the psalmist helps in those times too here. And I'm thinking of verse 7 in particular, and I want you to pay attention to that verse because he says there in verse 7 that he made his ways, he made known his ways to Moses and his acts to the people of Israel. And I would have you substitute the word acts there for his works because it really is the same thing and it just, it just is easier to remember this way. So let's translate it this way. He made known his ways to Moses and his works to the people of Israel. Now, as I've said, this is a reference to the scene in Exodus 34 where God meets Moses on the mountain and he gives him a peek behind the curtain, so to speak. So Moses gets a, a, a view of what God is really like that, that the rest of the nation doesn't get. God showed Israel his works in the things that he did. He delivered them from Egypt. He provided for them in the wilderness and so forth. But Moses got a glimpse of his ways. Israel, Israel um, got to see what God could do. But Moses got to see what God was like. And the problem is that sometimes it can feel like God's works aren't conforming to his ways. You with me? When you're in the middle of something really, really hard and you, and you, and you think, what in the world is going on? And it feels like the work that he's doing in your life doesn't conform to what he says to be true about himself in the word. Something really hard happens or, or so forth. But these verses are showing us something very, very important that we have to hold on to in times like that. And that's that God's ways are the same in all of his works. And what faith does is faith views God's works through the lens of his ways, not his ways through the lens of his works. So when a particular work of God seems hard to bear, you've got to remember, you've got to get behind it. You've got to ask for what Moses asked. Show me your glory, Lord, so you can get behind the curtain, so to speak, and remember his ways. And what are his ways? Here's Deuteronomy 32, 4. Listen to this. His work is perfect. For all his ways are justice. Do you see how it connects those two words? This work God is doing is perfect because his ways are always justice. The work of God that is so hard, it's said there, is perfect because of what we know to be true of his ways. And what are his ways? He's a faithful God, Deuteronomy 32 goes on to say, who does no wrong. Perfect in all of his ways. Upright and just is he. That is who God the Father is. That is how he loves, even though life is full of times when we wonder whether it can possibly be true. Isn't that great news? You with me? Don't you rejoice in that? You should. It's true. Even if your heart can't feel the truth of it this morning, the scripture's got to come in and, and come into that empty place and fill it up with the promise of who God says he is. Well, so the first truth there is that we're loved by God, that there is a love like that. And it's what we're all looking for. It's home. The parable of the prodigal son is a story about going home, and it's home. No matter who you are, you can be found. The love of God can find you, and that is a life-rearranging truth. You can't come to believe 
that there is a heart like this at the, at the center of the universe, that the heartbeat of everything that exists is this very God that we're describing here in, from Psalm 103. You can't believe that and stay the same. It changes you. It, it has to change you. And so that's the second truth, that, that we are loved by God like this. But the second truth is that we are, we are to love like God loves like this. Faith energizes love. It's active in love. It's completed in love. We read this past week in James chapter 2 in our community Bible reading. That's Faith without works is dead, James says there. It's not the real thing. So faith is knowing your love by the Father. And then the works that James is referring to are loving like the Father. So you have to know your love by the Father. And if you know your love by the Father, then you will live a life with, with a new capacity and a new power at the core of who you are to love like God loves, like the Father in the parable. And that, perhaps, is the lesson of the parable. Because remember, it's written to, it's written, or it's, it's spoken, rather, to the Pharisees and the scribes by Jesus. Because their life is they're so deformed, their spirituality is so deformed because they claim to have faith, but they have no love. They're upset because he's eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so the lesson of the parable, I think, is that we're meant to become like the father in the story. Henry Nouwen, again, meditating on Rembrandt's painting, as I talked about last week, noted how in the painting, all of the light, and I wish I had it, I should have told them to put it up, but if you can remember it, Joe might be able to find it. He's going to like go try to like dig it up now as I'm talking. But he, he noted, there it is, look at that, Joe, is, he's the man. If you notice there, he talks about how all of the light surrounded the father so that even though he's not centered on the canvas, he gets all of the attention. So he's not at the center, but, but, but the Father's embrace of the Son is where he wants your eyes to go. And he writes, he says, I'm amazed at how long it has taken me to make the Father the center of my attention. That's a great life lesson, by the way. How long it's taken me to make the Father the center of my attention. Why pay so much attention to the sons when it is the Father who is the center? Why talk so much about being like the sons? When the real question is, are you interested in being like the Father? Do I want to be like the Father, he asks. Do I want to be not just the one who is being forgiven, but also the one who forgives? Not just the one being welcomed home, but also the one who welcomes. Not just the one who receives compassion, but the one who offers it as well. What I'm called to make true is that whether I'm the younger or the elder son, I am the son of my compassionate Father. I'm an heir And indeed, as son and heir, I am to become successor. I am destined to step into my father's place and offer to others the same compassion that he has offered to me. The return to the father, he says, is ultimately the challenge to become the father. And so the parable is about being a true child of God, a true son who bears the family likeness, a true child of God who carries on the mission of the Father in heaven. Remember, again, the parables told to the religious folks who were grumbling about God's grace. So they were, so they were grumbling about the fundamental fact of who God is. I don't like that, they said. Well, then you don't like him. Because that's what he's like. They were not loving like God loves. They, they didn't love that God loved sinners. In fact, they hated that. It's a pretty big problem. You're pretty out of step 
with the heart of God at that point. So come back to Psalm 103. And what you see, I admit, I don't think the psalm necessarily was written to be read like this, but I think it's instructive in light of Luke 15 for us to do so. You can see not only does it show us how we are loved by God, but it also shows us how we can love like God, that we should not be emotionally disengaged or aloof from one another. We should weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice, Romans 12 says. We should allow the heartbreak of others to break our hearts and be moved by their needs. That's mercy. We should show grace as as God does, not treating people as their sins deserve, not repaying evil with evil, but love and covering one another's sins and forgiving one another. We, We should be with one another and with the world slow to anger, patient, bearing with one another. I mean, we should get angry. But when we're angry, we should deal with it, not allowing ourselves to become resentful, not keeping our anger against one another. We should be abounding in steadfast love for one another, stubborn love, love that refuses to give up on one another, even when it's lopsided, even when what you're giving far exceeds what you're receiving. This is the kind of people that we are meant to be if we're going to image God who loves like this. Okay, but... See, this is where I think we have to deal, we have to go just before we finish this morning. And we, we you know, okay, I, I hear you. But, and I would tell you, you should be suspicious of that but in your heart. Okay? You should be somewhat suspicious of it, but we also, also need to address as well, because you want to say, you know, doesn't something in you want to rise up? And, and I know it because I've heard it, and I've not heard it in a, in a rebellious way at all. I've heard it from people saying, gosh, I'm struggling with this because I think the implication of some of this is this, but isn't there, I mean, where is the limit? What, isn't there a limit to showing this kind of love? I mean, when does this run out? At some point, if the father just keeps letting his son get away with his sin, isn't he not loving his son? And the answer, of course, is yes. And the scripture has a lot to say about the right kind of balance, but that's not what this story is about. This story, in telling the story, Jesus is not trying to make us balance. He's trying to imbalance us. He's trying to shake us awake. And there is one problem. There's the one problem. You know, that we might go too far with this kind of love, but there's another problem. And the other problem is that we might not even get started with this kind of love. And I'm just going to be honest with you, in my experience, in my personal experience, we're far more likely to fail at the second and not at the first, which is why I would tell you to be a little suspicious of the but that immediately arises in your heart when we start to talk about these things. Let's not stop before we get started. And also, I'm very suspicious of this talk of, well, too much grace. Ray Ortland would say that's like saying there's too much oxygen. There's no such thing as too much oxygen. There's no such thing as too much grace. It is, grace is the oxygen we breathe spiritually in order to live and flourish. Now, a great example of of the danger that I'm talking about actually is the book of Judges, which we're just about to finish reading together in community Bible reading. And I hope you're reading with us. And this is one of my favorite books in the Old Testament because it's just so, oh, it's just so raw. But one of the features of the book is this repeating cycle of sin and repentance and, and going around and around. Did you notice this as you read? I mean, this is just what happens over and over again. Israel sins and God gives them over to an enemy. And then they're really sorry because things have started to go really bad for them. And so they cry out to God and repent and ask him to forgive them and come and rescue them. And he forgives them. And he sends a deliverer to rescue them. And it goes along for a while, like, you know, five years or... 20 years or so, and then they sin again. 
They forget the Lord and they sin again and God delivers them over to an enemy and all of a sudden they're really sorry for their sin and they cry out and ask God to save them and he does. He raises up another judge and it goes on and on and on, around and around and around you go and it's just exhausting. It's exhausting to read. You think, you know, there has to be some end to this. God is eventually going to get fed up and stop showing them grace, right? I mean, this is just ridiculous. This can't go on this way and you come to chapter 10 And it finally happens in chapter 10. They sin, and the Lord delivers them over to the hands of the enemy, and they cry out to God. But this time, here's the way God answers them, and this is my paraphrase. He says, I've delivered you over and over and over again, yet you keep forsaking me and serving other gods, so I'm done. You can read it, Judges 10. He says, go, cry out to those other gods that you keep trying to serve. And so, you know, you think, wow, okay. He's finally, he's finally done it. It's finally come to the end. And then almost in the very next verse, what happens is, is it goes from bad to worse for them. And here's what it says. Unprompted. It's not like they doubled down on their repentance or anything. In the very next verse, it says this. Then the Lord saw and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. And he saved them. And the way I read it is, it's like he, you know, he almost just couldn't even help himself. But can you blame any father for not giving up on their son? And so I think given the choice, the first thing I would speak into kind of our struggle with these things is given the choice of too little or too much grace, the parable is stretching us towards too much. Because that's God's way, fundamentally. And I know that presents problems. We're not going to deal with those today because I'm trying to stretch you towards too much. You see what I'm saying? Can we be in balance for like five minutes? Can we wrestle with this at least until this afternoon? And then we can, you know, we can wrap it up in a nice theological bow later. Why do our hearts need that? Because this is uncomfortable. Like we're losing control here and that doesn't feel good. And so I just want us to live there. Can we live there for a minute? Given the choice, and I don't think it's a choice, but given the choice of too little or too much, the parable stretches towards too much because that is God's way. Now, let me finish up by saying in John 13, uh, the passage we read earlier, Jesus said to his disciples, just as I've loved you, so you love one another. And that surely means because I've loved you, you should love one another. But I think it also means in the same way that I've loved you, you should love one another like I've loved you. Love one another. Of course, he had just finished washing their feet, so he's saying, I washed your feet, you go wash the feet of others or of one another. And so, with the parable, I think there are lessons. And this is probably a whole other sermon that we just don't have time for. I told you I wanted to do this for like three months, okay? So, uh, we should practically look to the Father. If, if the goal of the parable is that we become heirs who take up the, the mission of the Father, then we should love like the Father practically loves here, and we should look to his love practically to love the way he loved his sons. And I think there are so many, um, you're going to have to forgive me, just there's so many lessons here that we could go into, but just maybe a couple that I, I see that I think are particularly significant. And the, the one is, I think part of what that means is that we should always err on the side of grace. Be more afraid of too little grace than too much grace. It's kindness that leads people to repentance. Amen? It's not repentance that leads to kindness. And grace doesn't mean you don't speak the truth. It means you speak the truth with a certain tone, with more sadness than anger. I mean, you can confront someone and show them grace. Can we agree on that? 
So it's, it's a both and, not an either or here. But So err on the side of grace. Number two, one of the huge lessons, I think, is stay out of the way. If you're trying to love someone like one of these two boys, maybe it's a son or maybe it's a friend or whatever, stay out of the way. God is working. Let him work. Notice the father didn't try to stop the son from leaving. There's no indication of that. He didn't chase after him at first. He let him go, and he waited, and he watched. And there's a detail in the text that gets overlooked. It says in verse 14 of Luke 15 that really what, what caused the son to become to come to the condition that he came to was that there was a severe famine that arose in the country where the, where the boy ran off to, and he began to be in need because of the famine. And that's when it says he came to his senses. There was a providence that made him ready to face the truth. But the father had to wait. God is at work in the lives of the people you love too, so be patient. Let him work. Stay out of the way. Third, Pray for famine. Fourth, remain hopeful, not cynical. Keep your heart engaged. The father wasn't surprised when his son came home, right? It says while he was still a long way off, he saw him, which meant he'd been looking for him. He was expecting him to come home. And then I think one last thing. I mean, again, we could do 20 of these, right? But just a few. But then at the first sign of repentance, run. If you're dealing with a hard heart or entitlement, it's a little bit of a different issue. It's still love, but it looks different. You wait. You pray. You confront gently and patiently with a smile on your face, with a kind tone to your voice. But the moment there's any sign of repentance... You run over and over again, as many times as it takes. That's the, that's the, the lesson with Jesus and, and, and um, Peter earlier. Seven times, Jesus tells Peter, as many times as it takes. You meet repentance, even if it's the, if it's the same repentance you got yesterday and the day before and the day before. and what, I mean, every time, as many times as it takes. And yes, listen, yes, it's risky. Yes, it's exhausting. Yes, you'll probably get burned. Your heart will be broken, which is why you have to remember that there is a father who has loved you like that. He's only calling you to love the way you've been loved and being loved by him is the power source to love like him, to become heirs, to take up the mantle of the family's mission. I am destined to step into my father's place and offer to others the same compassion that he has offered to me. So the return to the father is ultimately the challenge to become the father. Amen. Let's pray. So, Father, in these last moments that we have to be together this morning, would you yet again remind us of the great love with which you've loved us? And we know it's a work of your spirit to cause us to be moved by it. And so we pray that as we contemplate yet again what it means for you to have a father's heart, that it would move our hearts to worship and gratitude and joy, that it would soften and melt our hearts out of the self-righteousness and impatience and whatever the, whatever the case might be toward compassion towards ourselves. Uh, that we would not fail to show compassion toward ourselves, but also towards other people as well, that we might live with a heart towards ourselves and towards others that is like your heart towards us. Because then we would bear fruit. 
And so no matter who we are this morning, whether whether we're here and we need to return home yet again, would you call us home? Will we hear you calling us back to believing the truth of your great heart for us? And would uh, will we come? I pray you give us feet to run, to, to outrace you. <laughs> that we would have an experience this morning like the Father and the Son on the road, kissing and weeping and throwing themselves on one another because that's what our hearts need. That's the kind of homecoming we need. So call us out of our sin. More importantly, call us out of our self-righteousness and our works righteousness into the wonder of your grace. And free our hearts from the bondage of sin and self-regard, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. I love the structure of that song, how it repeats. That's who you are, that's who you are, that's who you are, that's who I am. It's almost as if uh, whoever wrote it, I can't remember if it's Chris Tomlin or whoever knew, that it's something that our hearts are so prone to disbelieve that we have to just drill it. We have to keep saying it over and over again to ourselves until we come to believe it. And so that's what I hope, because that is that is the spring of spiritual health. If the, if the parable is teaching us that the thing that we most our want to believe is that God is like the father in the story that we have to just go to work on our own hearts so I pray you go today singing uh, those words over yourself until you come to believe them and yet again the benediction uh, is just one more assurance uh, that the things we've spoken of are true so receive these words as the truest heart of your father may the Lord bless you and keep you may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore amen go in his peace God bless